Hey everybody, thrilled to have you back for another edition of Just Getting Started. This time I went deep into my own Rolodex as I feel like I do every week. <laughs> because let's face it, you gotta make your life easy. And I feel like I want to hear stories from people that I wanna hear from. Selfishly, it's my podcast and I get to choose, right? So I went and asked my friend Elizabeth Banks if she could join us because she is a fellow mass hole from That's Massachusetts. True. I feel like we are a very specific breed. Yes. I'm not wrong, am I? Liz? No, I, 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 I was at a I was at a wake recently and someone was like, Hey, are you from Massachusetts? <laughs> and I was like, Yeah. And it was Dennis Lehane, who's famously from Massachusetts. And I was like, Yeah, Dennis Lehane. And we instant connection. I've never met this person a day in my life, but it was like instantaneous that we both knew we were mass holes. Why do you think people from Massachusetts just know that somebody else is a masshole. Do we have like a tattoo on our foreheads? Is it the beanie with the pom-pom? Like, what is it? <laughs> no, I think, you know what I think it is? Massachusetts is mostly a working class town, like the whole state. And I think anybody who makes it out is like, hey, did you make <laughs> you it out? It. <laughs> you know I mean? And by the way, you can do that even in Massachusetts. But I think people who make it out and are doing something in the world, I just think other people from Massachusetts are like, can you believe it? Like, because we, you know, mostly everybody just... People don't leave. I mean, no. my whole family... My whole family's there too. Yeah. My mom got out. My mom went to New York to be with me and then I promptly moved to California. That worked out well. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's funny. There's something about that Massachusetts mentality that really shapes you as you get older. I feel like the older I get, the more New England I become. <laughs> Why do you think that? What does that mean to you? Uh, to me, it means my values are very centered. I'm very straightforward. Mm -hmm. I am less attracted to flash and circumstance and pomp and all that, well, pomp and circumstance mm. than I was when I was younger. And I just feel like it's a stalwart sensibility. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, um, I think it's like the pilgrim's work ethic. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like it really takes a lot to cross an ocean it's there's rebelliousness in it, obviously, because we had to rebel mm -hmm. in order to do it. But then once once people got here and pillaged the land and killed a lot of people, sure, um, post genocide. So I do want to recognize that the but there was a really strong. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you, into it. <laughs> you don't think that the pilgrims and the Indians got together? I don't and think had they shook hands. Sauce, like I don't Sturbridge think they Village? shook a lot of hands. No, because I, that's what I learned. <laughs> <laughs> I stood on Plymouth Rock and was like, woohoo, we did it. <laughs> it's not cool. No. I'm really glad our kids are not learning that. No, I mean, I think about how I did take our kids to uh, Lexington and Concord uh -huh. last summer sure. when we were back home after camp. And it was, I had forgotten how fun it is to go through that. They were bored for a fair amount of time. Sure. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, me too. I also love like a, a Hancock Shaker Village or a Sturbridge, <laughs> you know, where you, this is this is like we're getting local for the mass all the time. <laughs> By the way, for the, for the, for the like... international <laughs> listeners, you have no idea what we're talking about. So we do apologize. You can learn a lot of American history in a lot of towns in Massachusetts. And one those are some of them that you and I have been talking about. The Revolutionary War was begun there and there's some really cool stuff. One if by land, two if by sea. Yeah. So how did a kid from Pittsfield get to become a Hollywood superstar. How did this happen? Because I always think it's, I always think at the end of the day, I remember, you know, like even throughout my career, I'm just a kid from South Dartmouth, Massachusetts, deep yeah. down, right? Yeah. South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. And a lot of people from South Dartmouth stay in South Dartmouth. So the yeah. question is, 
how did that happen? And we can talk about this for the next, you know, five hours straight, but <laughs> how does a kid from Pittsfield, Massachusetts become an internationally acclaimed director and celebrity Thank and you. actor, et cetera? You know, um, yes. Also self-made millionaire. I do like to, I've, I've started to say that because I feel like people, especially women forget that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that term is also problematic. We're gonna have a lot of problematic terms today, <laughs> by the way, the, the next <laughs> podcast I launch will become, it'll be called problematic, problematic terms, terms, which by the way, I kind of like. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's something that you're born with or that you learn, but I had a really strong sense. One that I wanted, I had city blood, you know, I did was not like a, my town was not big enough for me. (laughs) And I don't know what that is. I just think you know it inside of yourself that there's something else out there for you. I grew up in a, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. It's a small town. I think there's about 30,000 people in it now. It's actually, so it's not that small of a town. There are smaller towns around it. It's actually the hub of Western Massachusetts, but, um, it was a general electric factory town. My father worked in the factory and, um, I just knew I wanted something bigger, better. And I grew up going to cities. I grew up going to New York and going to Boston and going to Montreal and Cleveland and Chicago. And so I knew what cities were. And it, that was for me. That was a life for me. Once I saw it, that's what I wanted. And um, and I just spent my time in school knowing that if I did well in school, like that was my ticket out. I really believe in education for that reason. For most people, it's it's can be, it is a pathway to something else in life. And, um, that's what I did. I went to Penn in Philadelphia. I met a great guy. He's still my husband. (laughs) We're sitting in the house that we own together. Um, that helps choosing a good partner really helps. I think people maybe overlook how important that life choice is. Um, and I, and it really is a choice too. Like people that are like, well, I fell in love and then we did a thing. It's like, this is, I'm talking like deep, like a see your future with someone plan things together, kind of a person in your life. And I think when you find that person, that's really helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of how do you make things happen? So that's why self-made is problematic because of course I had a really loving, great supportive family. And I had a really loving, great, supportive boyfriend who then became my husband. Um, but the dreams were mine. The work was mine. The determination, resilience, that was all mine. And and I, I, I happily own those things about myself. When you were a kid and you were in Pittsfield, you talked about education. What were you interested in back then that you think helped field your dreams? Hmm. I had no idea. I, you know, it's interesting. I just knew that the people that I looked up to, I had an uncle who went to Harvard Law School. He's my godfather. He's my mother's only brother. I'm from a humongous family. Um, so my dad is from eight kids. My mom's from seven. So I have a lot of aunts and uncles. And in my mother's family, my uncle, who's the greatest guy, so there's this is no... no uh, jail on him, but you know, he got the family resources as men did back in those days. And so he's a, he became a lawyer and he was, he's a lovely person, a humanitarian, et cetera. And I really looked up to him because I really felt like, Oh, that was, he got out. He was the ticket. And, um, 
And I, I don't mind saying like I wanted money. <laughs> I did not want to struggle as an adult. I watched my parents make those decisions about like the car payment, the food, the hot water. And that was of no interest to me. I knew that I wanted to be um, independent of anyone else. I wanted to make my own my own money. And I, I was a hustler. I started working when I was 12 and a half years old. And I've never not. What was your first job? My first job was working uh, after school. I was the game room coordinator at the Catholic Youth Center, and I worked there on Saturdays helping to run the basketball league and serving coffee to all the parents and collecting dues. So I, my Saturdays were like get up at 7 a.m., usually walk a mile and a half to the Catholic Youth Center where they had a basketball league where I was also in the cheerleading league, and I was a cheerleading coach in that league. And I basically – as like a fifth and sixth grader babysat like younger kids after school in the game room. And then um, started working. Uh, I started working as a waitress when I was 15. I worked as a waitress for 10 years. I also did catering. Okay, were, were you a good waitress? <laughs> yeah, were you I was a, a really good waitress. waitress. No, no, I'm a very good waitress. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like good balance, good hand-eye coordination, good memorization comes in handy in my other job, acting. Um, and yeah, so I was that I was that weirdo who was like, I got it. I don't have to write anything down. And people are like, maybe you need to write this down. I'm like, I, I got your order. No, got it's it. not that complicated. This isn't brain surgery. You don't have to treat me like a moron. But people don't order like at Los Angeles and Massachusetts, at least. It might have just been like the sauteed onions on the side. But Literally, that's what we're like talking it. about. Yeah. yeah. It was like, yes, it was not a big deal. I also, though, was the fastest folder of pizza boxes at the pizza restaurant that I worked at. That so was you really real... developed your skills at yeah. an early age with origami. I did. Mm -hmm. That's right. When you were a pen, oh, let me ask you this first. How yeah. how rare was it, how much of an anomaly was it for you to go to an Ivy League school from your small town? It's mostly just an anomaly in my family. <laughs> <laughs> I, there are other people in my small town. My, my best friend went to an Ivy League school. My best friend's from high school. And um, that, you know, honestly, Penn was, it wasn't so much that it was in the Ivy League. I wanted to go to school in a city. I didn't want that city to be Boston. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was too close to home for me. Agreed. Um, and uh, so it was kind of like, I was looking in Chicago and DC and honestly I just drove through Philly one day on the way up the east coast and was like we should check this place out and then I fell in love with it and I applied early decision and that was that. Got How it. much acting did you do there? I did it but recreationally I did it it was my extracurricular activity it was not a game plan for a career I didn't know any artists growing up despite being from western Massachusetts which is filled with artists that wasn't my scene growing up. And so I didn't know anybody who was an artist that wasn't actually just a waitress or a waiter. Um, and it didn't seem like a career path that had the stability I was looking for. <laughs> um, and so I didn't really, I was not pursuing it. And then I kind of fell in with a group of of fellow actors at Penn who all really wanted to be actors and wanted to go to MFA programs and were applying to Yale Drama School and Juilliard and things like that. And and honestly, I applied kind of, I, I wouldn't say on a whim. I thought like, if this door opens, I'll walk through it. Um, but otherwise I was looking for corporate jobs in New York City after after school. What would you have done? 
I have no, I've, I have no idea. Probably news. I was really interested in being like the, like Diane Sawyer. Um, even though I loved acting, it just did not feel safe to me. And I wanted some, a sense of security. And then I ended up getting into, I had an amazing, I went to New York city on my birthday when I was 22 years old. I turned 22 that day, February 10th. And uh, I visited my sorority sister who was living there, who was older than me. I stayed at her place and I auditioned for ACT in San Francisco, the American Conservatory Theater for their MFA program. And I went to the audition. I was having the greatest day. You know, New York, it was just one of those beautiful days. It was crisp, but it wasn't too cold. And it was sunny. And I just loved the city. And I felt so energized being there. And I walked into this audition, which was in a room at NYU. I'd never been to NYU. And I thought, oh, NYU was cool. And um, I met people in Washington Square Park that morning who were cool. And I just, I kind of saw my whole life all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm going to be an artist and this is going to work out. And I went to the audition with literally nothing but like, say la vie confidence. Like, let's see what happens. And I, I showed up early. They were eating their lunch. So I ended up kind of sitting and talking with the program director, um, Melissa, who since passed away. Actually, she just passed away last year. And, um, and they, we just got on, we just got along. And then I did my audition very kind of threw it away, which is what they tell you to always do. Never want it too bad. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want anything that day, but just for the day to like never end because it was such a good day. And I got in. And what was that experience like? Going to school? Yeah. Uh, the to study. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like going to school to study a craft like that. I never went to school for journalism. I only went for history and art history. Right. So I always, I always wondered what it was like for people who went to go study broadcast because <laughs> I thought... I was lucky I got to practice in the field. You yeah. Know? So what was it like to study acting? Well, the great thing about any of those programs um, and just being young and, you know, it's true also of like going to the Williamstown Theater Festival or doing any summer stock or anything like that is when you're young and idealistic and naive, it's the best because you don't know what's not possible. You only think about what is possible and you get to dream a lot there. And so you get to tell stories that you don't actually get to tell in real life, you know. Um, I played Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream, for instance, and it was really, and I was really physical in the role and it was really fun. And so you get to do things that you just, you stretch yourself and you talk about storytelling and you immerse yourself in stories that you're just never in your professional life really ever going to get to do again, honestly. I mean, it becomes experimental, right? It becomes like, you can do it, but I needed to make money doing it. So I was ask you, how did you support yourself while you were doing this? I worked. I was a waitress and I worked um I worked in an insurance company. <laughs> you know, I'm that person. I never went on a spring break. I never went on a vacation. I never I worked constantly. So I I didn't really socialize in my my twenties were like I would work until midnight and then go to dance and dance until 3 a.m. and then sleep all weekend and go back, to, you know, keep going. I had that life. I was a vampire, basically, in were, my 20s. Were you in love with the acting by then? Had you figured out that this was going to be Once I got into go school, once life? I got into school, so I went to that same uncle, my uncle Rick, the lawyer, and I said, oh, my God, I got into 
drama school, I can, I have these huge loans, student loans. And I don't know, I mean, what am I doing? Am I going to take on, you know, three more years of loans for masters of fine arts and acting? Like, what am I doing? This is not the game plan. And my uncle reminded me, he's like, you just got an Ivy League degree. You're totally employable. Like, follow this dream now because I don't think it's going to happen again. And he was right. So he's like, go now. And if it doesn't work out, go get a job. Like, what's the difference? And I've had that that energy of what's the worst that can happen? I can always go. I can always drive a bus is what I used to tell myself because I got a special class license to drive a bus. Once. You do not. I don't still have it. I mean, I don't still have it. I used to drive this big bus, this like sprinter van for cater. I, I was the driver for the catering company. Because I made extra money and you worked longer because you had to go pick up the van from the special place and like go pick up everybody who was going to cater and then it bring the van back at the end of the night. By the way, as a young woman in West Philadelphia, I'm dropping off a sprinter van at 2 a.m. after a wedding reception. <laughs> and, um, but, I like made, but I made, but I made, but I made like 18 life. extra dollars <laughs> and I, I took every penny that I could find back then. Hey, folks, it's time for the NFL draft, which means for me, I need a good night's sleep because if I don't have one, I'm just not myself. You know the deal. You know exactly how important it is to have quality sleep. It's a game changer for all of us. So sleep number helps me. My sleep number setting is 60. My wife's setting is 70. We both get a great night's sleep because we could adjust the firmness of our mattress on each side. Improve your quality sleep because Sleep Number learns how you sleep thanks to their smart beds and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Student loans, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. Just yeah. Obviously, it's part of the vernacular right now and totally. talking about whether or not people will get forgiven for their loans. How much of a saddle was that for you? How much of a burden was it knowing that you had those loans piling up? Well, this is my point is I do think it affects everyone's decision making. I mean, I really struggled with that decision about whether to go to school. And that that is what led me to my career going to school. I didn't know how I mean, maybe I could have gone to New York and figured out how to like go through backstage magazine and go to an audition. I don't know. Um, but I didn't know how to, I knew how to be a student. I didn't know how to be an actor yet. And I really needed that transition from into grad school to figure that out. And also grad school for me was partially just, um, a way to, again, secure, it was safety net. I just always had safety net, safety net. So the Ivy League education was just a safety net. The MFA was a safety net. It was like, okay, so if, if things you're pursuing don't work out, you've got backup plans galore. You've got B, C, and D. You can go be a teacher. You can be a professor. You can do blah. So it's always about like making sure that um, I wasn't going to have to hustle forever. I say I'm like the I've never been busier in my life. By the way, <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, I think I just like being busy. But I liked having those backup plans. But I do think that student loans are absolutely a burden that. Um, 
I'd love to see forgiven. I mean, I'd love to see higher education become more affordable for everybody. I don't know how to do it. It's a big deal. But if I could wave a magic wand, executive order, I would. (laughs) I mean, executive order in so many ways. But that's a whole different podcast. That can be executive order. That can be be the next podcast. Executive orders. Whatever the one I already put out the name of the other one. It just, it really does. Of course, it's a burden and and, um, affects people's decision making. And, you know, and I had the best case scenario. Again, I had a supportive family. I mean, they didn't have any money to give me, but I, you know, I was, I could live with other people. I mean, I lived frugally. I would live in closets. Like I literally, I had a bed in a closet in college. So, um, I knew how to make a a dollar go really far, but even so, um, I didn't want to work at McKinsey and company, you know, or whatever I was going to end up being employed in order to pay off my, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. Um, it ended up being a Crest commercial that paid off my loans. Really? Yeah. Was that your first job or was that? No, but it was early on. Tell me your first job. What was my first, my first, well, I worked in a lot of commercials. So my first, um, my, my very first job actually was I became a catalog model for Petite Sophisticate. Well, when I think you of know, sophisticated, that's I think me. Of Elizabeth Bay. Um, and I loved that job. So much fun. And I met great people. I'm still friends with some of the people I met on that job. Uh, the so I became a catalog model um really early on in New York. I went to a lot of commercial auditions, that which is a great way to lose your dignity very fast. And you learn really quickly, like, oh, this is this is what this is what Hollywood's going to be. <laughs> I remember going to Jin and they were like, oh, this is in a bikini. You didn't bring a bikini? And I was like, no. And they're like, just take off your clothes and we'll just photograph you in your underwear using this Polaroid camera and horrible lighting. Mm. And that photo is out there somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> because you just said yes to everything. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I, and I didn't get that job. I was like, so uncomfortable. Anyway, uh, those were the kind, you know, I remember auditioning for a Wisconsin cheese commercial and it was like, all right, you're, um, pretend you're riding a bike and you know, you're sitting there, you're pretending you're riding a bike and like, okay. And you're looking around, you're having a great day. Smile. Okay. I'm smiling, you know, looking around and like, and, um, and then oh, you see like a little boy and he's on a tricycle and you see a dog and then you see like a dancing wheel of cheese. And I just burst out laughing. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, there's like a dancing wheel of cheese, you know, and the the casting directors are so over it. They're like, oh, okay, go back. You're on the bike. You're smiling. There's a dancing wheel of cheese. Like, what's the big deal? You know, you're just like, what am I doing? How does one react to a dancing wheel of cheese? I, this was my, this was my question. Apparently not the way I did because I did not get that job. So didn't was, get that was job. Was Crest the big payoff? So Crest was a big one, yeah. So I did a bunch of really good uh, national commercials back then. And Crest was my my the one that made me the most cash. And I paid off a lot of loans with that um, Crest commercial. Yeah. And then how does a kid start figuring out auditions? Like, how does that work? Whereas you start auditioning after Crest, after Well, it's not, you have, I mean, look, I tell people, you, you can, you can do the like flip through things and send your, it's all about getting an agent. I mean, I got an agent from school. Uh, you know, we do a showcase, um, all the programs do showcases in New York. I did my showcase and I got an agent. I actually got a contract to be on 
a soap opera for two years as well. I would have had to leave school early, not graduate my class and move to New York overnight. And I remember calling my mom and saying, mom, I'm not doing it. And I burst into tears because that would have paid off all my student loans. Um, but it was my first day in New York. And I thought if I can get a two-year contract on a soap opera on day one in New York City, what can I do tomorrow? And that's how I approach most things in life. <laughs> what was the soap opera? It was either – it's one of the A ones. So it was either As the World Turns or uh, what was the other one that begins began with an A? It might have been As the World Turns. Anyway, I didn't take it. $250,000 contract. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money. That's the most money I'd ever heard of in my life at that point. I want to reiterate that, though, because I think that for people who watch this and they are trying to figure out their own way, the fact that you wouldn't just take the first offer that seemed easy in there, I think, is incredibly telling. It sets the stage for the rest (laughs) of your life. You know, that wasn't my dream. And I was like, I'd worked, I'd invested too much in figuring out what my dream was and what my life was meant to look like. And that wasn't it. And I just knew in the moment that I needed to stay on the path that I believed in. And that was an amazing, it would have been an amazing detour probably, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And by the way, I didn't, it's not like I got a great job a minute later. I didn't, but I did work pretty consistently after that offer, mostly in commercials. And prioritizing graduation as well. It's that not- was right. I really wanted to finish out my education. I did. It's funny because I just think that many people tend to write actors off as, oh, they didn't even go to high school. Oh, they didn't even, even go to college. In your life, especially having branched out into business and directing, what have you, that you have not only a degree to lean back on and also to show people I think, well, because I'll tell you, I mean, I know from my own experience, Phil Jackson saying to me one day after, you know, when I was doing a series of interviews with Kobe and with him when I was the host of the Lakers, you know, he, he would look at you a certain way and he would write you off because you were a woman a lot of the time. Yeah, totally. And at one point, um, he, I had a book in my bag. He asked me what book I was reading. I told him and he said, oh, where did you go to college? I said, I went to Columbia. Where did you go, Phil? <laughs> and we had a different relationship from then on. It, it's, I think for women in, in a business, in acting, in broadcast, in whatever you're doing, because I really don't, I don't think it matters yeah. to have the education that if somebody is to challenge you, yeah, you can challenge them right back. It kind of sets the table for the relationship you're going to have with someone. I do think it's unfortunately that's the case. Do you know what I mean? By the way, I meet incredible people who are not formally educated, but who are interested in the world around them. And that's what I care about. I care about curious people. I care about people who are, um, you know, who take notice, who are, who do, who read, who read or who are well-read or who are, you know, I know people that all they, uh, that are so knowledgeable just about like Hollywood and history and whatever it is, just, you know, it's, I, I just want somebody who, I just enjoy people. I think we all do, um, who are interested in the world around them, who are curious and who can sort of talk. You don't have to talk deeply about anything, but I don't know, just. Yeah. You don't have to split an atom. You don't have to split an atom. You don't have to, yeah. You don't have to tell me you're going to the moon, but I do think there's something about, um, people who put in the work, And that's what college or any of that formal education makes you do, right? It's about learning how to think and question and 
um, research and all of those things. I, and it does take hard work to get through it. So I think that's what it is. Like tells people that like, no, no, I, I competed and I won, <laughs> you know, that's what it is. What was your first bona fide acting role in a movie and a TV uh, show? You know, really, well, my very first TV show, I was, I did a reenactment on America's Most Wanted of a gruesome murder. Um, and I was the victim and I was run over by a car. Uh, and I, I actually did the stunt <laughs> on the day. So unsafely looking back on it. I mean, you know, it was a professional ish set, uh, and probably like a, an after set I bet back then. Um, and the worst part about that, so I had to go, I shot it like outside Baltimore or something. They shot America's most wanted. And I was living in Philadelphia. I went to Baltimore and I went to take like a Greyhound bus back up to school and I missed the bus and I ended up kind of staying in a bus depot (laughs) in Baltimore. Again, I was like 20 years old. Um, I weighed 98 pounds and I remember asking the per that, you know, they closed the deep. They were like kicking everybody out. And it was like me and some, you know, unhoused people <laughs> getting kicked out onto the street at midnight. And I remember calling my mom from a payphone back then and saying, I need your credit card number. I have to go stay at a motel or something until the bus comes in the morning. And she, she was like, I want you to go run there and then call me when you get there. And it was like, you know, the motel six. I mean, it was, it was dark. It was, it was, it was not a a happy moment in my life, actually. Well, no, I can't imagine running through a downtown Baltimore (laughs) at midnight. I mean, of course, alone. Yeah, exactly. My idea of Baltimore is the wire. So it makes it that much darker, but. So Omar could have been coming down the street behind you. It was just unfamiliar to me. I'm sure Baltimore is a lovely place, but for a young woman at midnight, in the in the darkness of uh, the bus depot was not uh, it didn't feel safe. This segment is sponsored by Dell Technologies Small Business Virtual Podference starting on May 10th. Whether you're still working remotely or back together again, let Dell Technologies help safeguard your business with modern devices and Windows 11 Pro. In the continuing theme of looking for confidence and finding your confidence and finding your stride, how did you then start landing roles that started putting together the acclaim that you've developed over the last well, couple look, of years? I will say everyone feels everyone has imposter syndrome for, you know, it just depends how long you have that. Uh, I mean, I really think most people get to work when they're young and they feel like they don't know what the hell they're doing. I certainly felt that way. I was very, um, insecure, you know, in a lot of things. At the same time, I remember going to the set of Catch Me If You Can, which was directed by Steven Spielberg and starred Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio. Amy Adams was in that movie with me. We're still friends to this day. And it was, um, I, I remember being on set and like hanging out in Video Village and, and, and I, nobody could, t- I, I had won the, I had won that role. I had, you know, I was there for a reason. Steven Spielberg picked me and that gave me a ton of confidence. And that's... Why do you think he picked you? 
I don't know. You'd have to ask him. Um, well, what do you think it was about you that made you stand out? This town is filled with beautiful blonde girls. Like That's what you, true. What do you think it was about you? I remember that audition. Through? I remember what I did in that audition. And I, I'm, I'm very good at improv. And I improv the end of that sequence. And I remember I danced. And I also remember Deb Zane was the casting director. I still work with her. And she um, she was filming it, and I did, like, a dance, like, ah, ha, ha. Like, you know, I pretended I'm with Leonardo DiCaprio, which was not hard, by the way. Um, pretend you're, that Leonardo DiCaprio is sweeping you off your feet. And I was like, well, I'm literally going to be swept off my feet. And so I, like, danced and, like, fell off camera, basically. And I remember she played it back for me because she was like, visually, this is interesting. And it was, so, and that was a, a really good lesson. It was like, make something, you know, if you just sit on camera and you do your lines, you know, and that's not as visually, like they're going to see a hundred tapes or a hundred girls. How do you make yourself interesting in the frame? Which is a good lesson for a director too. Um, and she was like, you just did it. And, um, you know, the other thing was, a hundred people audition, but I now have been on the other side of it. There's maybe four, maybe five people that you're going to feel are even in the running for like what you're really looking for. And I think um, for that particular job, there was just a real, an effervescence and an energy. And I'm, you know, I made money on this crest smile. And that's what I brought to that moment was just Evervescence. I just knew like this character just needed to just love life and be super excited by this handsome man, boy. That was that audition. I, I remember it really well. I don't remember most auditions, but I remember that one. There's something about that kind of fresh all-American look that's always been so appealing too, and that you had it for the Crest commercial. I suppose <laughs> was good value. I am very, yeah, I am very all-American. That's true. The other, I forget this though. The other thing was I read the script for Catch Me If You Can. And I do believe in this. I wrote down, um, I wrote down, I want to be in Catch Me If You Can, and I put it on my refrigerator. And um, so I just say that because I do think there is something to like setting intentions and real goals and, and goals that are makeable. Like there were like six female roles in that movie. And there were very few scripts around at the time where there was like, that much to do for women and girls in like big studio Hollywood films with big actors in them. And um, I just remember writing down like, I want to be in Catch Me If You Can. And then I was. Who's <laughs> been your favorite ensemble to work with? I remember you for the first time from 40-Year-Old Virgin. So I wonder if that would have been something that would have occurred to you. Yeah, uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin was like a reset for me. You know, I actually, so my very first ensemble was um, well, I had American Summer, and I had the most amazing time making that movie. What was I was, that like? it was, it was, it was an interesting time. I was really looking back. I mean, it was so fun. They, everyone was. I was. I'd never. I didn't live in New York really that long at that point, and um, I was not in the scene yet. And all of those guys were immersed in the theater and comedy scene in New York, and you know, the state was such a cool institution in that moment in time. It was just young people getting to do what they were really good at. And that was really fun to be a part of. Um, Who was the actor that stuck out to you the most that you thought this guy's going to become a huge star? We made a lot of fun of Paul Rudd at the time. Uh, he, 
he was, he got, he was either on the cover or in interview magazine, Mm. which was like everything back then. And, you know, he had done, he, he was in Clueless. He'd been in Clueless. And so we were like, this guy is making it, you know? And I remember, I think he was leaving our set to go make like an, like an action movie in Hong Kong or something. I don't remember. We were all like, Paul Rudd is gonna be a huge star, you know? And you have to remember, we were, we were with, you know, Molly Shannon, Jeanine Garofalo, um, David Hyde Pierce, who was on Frasier and was a huge star in his own right. They were part of our ensemble. Um, and so we looked up, that's who we looked up to, Janine Garofalo and and Chris Maloney. Like these were working actors and none of us were working actors yet. So we were all just excited to, that actual working actors had showed up to play alongside of us. How about that Steve Carell movie? And how about working with that whole ensemble for 40-year-old virgin for a young actor being a part of that, what was that like? So I had done Wet Hot and then I had made a lot of drama. So I was in Seabiscuit, um, Catch Me If You Can, for instance. I made this movie, The Heights, this Merchant Ivory film. And so doing the, I was, I think I was the last person to audition for the role of Beth in 40 Year Old Virgin. And uh, they were having a hard time finding the person, is my recollection. And I went in and auditioned and it was like going back to comedy. Do you know? It was like the reset of my career of like, oh yeah, Elizabeth Banks. I was getting roles that were like Jennifer Connelly, you know, mm-hmm. and like Elizabeth Banks were up for this role. And I'm, we are not similar <laughs> in actuality. And um, so what was really fun about doing that was just the freedom. We It was a lot of improv. I loved meeting that whole gang. I mean, I love working with Seth and Paul, right? You know, it was like right back with the, with the, it was just, it was familiar to me in a way that I hadn't worked on something that felt that familiar in a long time. And I feel really at home doing comedy in that way and just being allowed to run free and make a total ass of yourself. Do you prefer comedy to drama? No, I don't have a preference actually. I prefer just really good storytelling and I'm, I'm more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I am, I'm a little more, I honestly cannot, I have no language skills in this moment in time. Can you tell? Comfortable chameleon. No, I, it's, it's, it's about choices. I, I choose, sometimes choosing to do comedy is really a life choice. It's about like, this will be fun. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's just, this is a really good story. I, you know, it's honestly, it's hard, dur. There are there are better roles for women in dramas, if I'm being honest. That's I mean, at least that's what I've been seeing lately. It's very hard to find. Com- I mean, people are start making comedies right now. Um, I think it's so depressing. All I yeah. want is a really good rom com. I know. That's all I want. I love them too. I, I don't want, grew like, up on them. I don't need another miserable zombie apocalypse. I just want to see a really handsome boy sitting in front of a really beautiful girl yeah. asking him to love her. That's right. Is that I so want much? people who complete each other. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just want a break. So before I, I will say your fans would probably freak out if I didn't ask you about Hunger Games. Oh, sure. I would love to know about auditioning for that and, and, and getting and being in it. I know we're, we're tight on time. So give me a, a sense of being in that world and what you took from it. 
Well, I loved the book. Let me just say this. I read the book really early on. And, you know, I have a production company with my husband and we looked at the rights to that book. And of course, Nina Jacobson um, had snatched them up. But we were because we were in the running also for the Maze Runner series and just several, you know, we ended up uh, we have Red Queen with our company now. So I love YA, I think, because it is has romance and it has action in it. I love the sort of I don't even mind the dystopia of all of those things. I think thinking about Red, they're all revolutionaries too. And, you know, like that's our Massachusetts spirit. Let's bring it full circle. I love that spirit and things. And um, I loved those books. And I, I was connected to that character of Effie weirdly from reading it. I thought she was the representative from the Capitol and was your own in the book. First book was really the only way in. I mean, you heard about the Capitol. You kind of you knew that they were t- putting on a television show called The Hunger Games. But she was really, you know, she went to the districts. She pulled Katniss and Peta out of there and became their mentor. And then also she is the one who changes. Nobody else in the cap. Nobody changed over the course of that first book except for Effie. She was really affected by what Katniss did and it made her rethink like everything. And I thought that was a really interesting arc to be able to play. I also knew Gary Ross because I had been in Seabiscuit and I knew his producing partners. I knew the casting director. It was like I, I, I famously wrote a lot out of letters back in the day. I think letter writing is underrated. And, um, and also, again, it's like putting into the world what you want. I was like, I want to be Effie in your movie, Gary. What do you think? And here's all the reasons why I like it. And I know he was talking to other bigger stars. Um, and I just kind of like bided my time. And then I went in, we had a meeting and I was like, dude, just, let's just do it. And then so that translates that actually it. to your directing. Because a little bit. That means, I mean, and I know know, we're going to wrap in a second, guys, but I know that directing, obviously, you're controlling the dynamic of a movie set. Yes, that's true. And so as we as we as we finish up and you're giving advice into uh, moving forward, like how did directing pull everything together for you so that you felt like as a woman who wanted to control her own destiny, you are now (laughs) controlling these bigger sets? Um, You know, I. I I directed plays in college and drama school, so it wasn't like I'd never thought about it before. Uh, But directing in Hollywood, you know, as I was coming, I mean, I really, I was like, you know, breaking through barriers as it was happening. Obviously, there are actresses that came before me. Jodie Foster comes to mind. Penny Marshall comes to mind um, who had directed. So I had role models, but not a lot. And it really was about controlling, you know, looking around and going, I want to have as many choices going forward as possible. And I felt like playing third banana, you know, was not that interesting and making pitch perfect as a producer and seeing how you could actually put like a group of diverse women's stories at the forefront of a big Hollywood movie and then making a franchise out of it. That was incredibly liberating and and seemed really powerful as an idea, and I just wanted to keep doing more of it. <laughs> and uh, and it tur- it really cut- came down to like, well, that's not something that occurs to most people in Hollywood. You don't see a lot of posters with six, seven women on them, and so if you want to make those stories, I just felt like I had to just do it myself, and so 
I don't know. Here we are. We keep doing it. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you to come back for part two. Let's do it. Part, part two. Of course I will. Yeah, I will love We barely because... got into We I barely scratched the surface. This is what happens. I just feel like I want to share with our audience much more about how you developed your sense of business, mm. how you put together your production company, mm-hmm. how you look forward to what you're building as you go forward with Max and on your own and what have you. But yeah. um, I know you have to go on to other things right now. So I will say I always, thank you. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. I always say have really good plans. This is my life. This is my life advice and my directing advice. Have good plans, have backups, have your B, your C, lay it out, do the work, investigate, get it all laid out, and then be open to all the changes that actually happen as you're trying to put the plan into motion. Yeah. Because life will just come at you and that's fine too. So that's the improv part of it. Then you got to improv. So I think the answer to everybody is to go out there and take an improv class. I mean, <laughs> either that or waitress. I'm not sure which it is. Um, you need all, all of those skills. Our thanks to Thank Elizabeth you, Banks. Susie. Thank you for coming on. I do appreciate your time. So Woo! we will see you next week. And thanks for tuning in again.